Please be seated, brethren. When asked to uh, volunteer, I was thinking about what what outlines from the past would be beneficial, what uh, blessed me, benefited me, gave me help and encouragement and more of the truth. And I was looking back, and I spotted one from 2002, and it occurred to me that it was very helpful to me. It helped teach me things that I needed and that a number of people were actually not here in 2002. So I wanted to share it with the rest of you. Um, it was preached in a series of eight sermons. It was called Forgotten Sins. And uh, it's a, actually a very extensive outline. It went over fi- 65 different words from Scripture that describe sins that men today don't talk about, don't think about, don't care about. Right. And it also included five forgotten virtues. But... Uh, I only have 15 minutes or so to present this to you, so I'm going to give you a very, 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 very abbreviated form of this, because I want to stir you up to go back and look at that outline, because I'm only going to cover a little bit of the introduction, and then I'm going to cover three of the forgotten sins, just as a reminder. So you're going to have, well, another 62 to look at, because you should, because each one of these things is forgotten by man today. In fact, in many ways, our society loves these sins. It endorses them. It pushes these sins. And so we should look at them and we should examine in our lives if we have something wrong. Philip, thank you for for getting everything going for me here because where should a young man cleanse his way? Well, we should start looking at God's word for the things that we're already missing. Right. First of all, I'm going to give you just a little list of some of the things in there. And again, this is not exhaustive. This is just a few that you might not have thought of or heard recently or used in your conversation. So here's a few examples. Answering again, backbiting, banquetings, chambering, gainsaying, heady, implacable, reveling, sedition, self-will, surfeiting, tumult, and variance. Most of us haven't used those words this week. Some of us may not even know what those words mean, but they are all statements from our Bible about things that God hates. Right. We need to learn about them so we can avoid them. Right. Now, I'm going to give you a, a passage to think about first to show you the importance of this, because a lot of these things may seem small. That's why you don't hear about them, because they're just small to people. Matthew 5.19 says, Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. These least commandments decide your greatness before God. Now, again, these things may seem small, but we we say here and we look at salvation and we say, you know, it's not about our belief. We dismiss easy believism. And we we do that frequently when we talk about it. But if we dismiss such things, where does our responsibility lie? Our responsibility is to live holy lives before God. So that means we need to look at these things. We need to examine our lives, and we need to see where we have these little sins, and we rip them out. Now, a little objection is going to rise up in your mind. It's going to say, but they're so small. I'm not doing anything big. I'm not committing any major sins. Why do I need to worry about these? Well, brethren, that voice is in all of our hearts, and I'll tell you where that voice can first be found in Scripture, and it can be found in the Pharisees. Those Pharisees like to talk about how they gave their tithes of every little thing down to their herb garden. But Jesus told them, you've rejected the weightier matters, justice, mercy. And 
you can see many cases in which they take it, their statements and say, well, I'm not committing the Lord's sin. I didn't commit murder. You hated your brother in your heart. That's good enough for God. That's murder. We have to look at these sins, and we have to rank them by God's standard. For instance, what is rebellion equal to in the eyes of God? Idolatry and witchcraft. Now, what's the price for witchcraft? Death. So if you rebel against authority and you rebel against God's word, death. What about covetousness? What is covetousness related to? Idolatry. Amen. So if you're coveting something, if you love something too much in a way you shouldn't, you are worshiping an idol. Death in God's word. Now, what about being seditious? What about um, hating authority, speaking out against it? What does is, what is, uh, 2 Peter 2.10 say? That you're a rabid beast that's fit only to be destroyed. Right. That's right. All of these things are just little things, but God equates them to capital offenses in his word. So don't overlook these things. Don't look at them and say, well, it's just too small for me to care about. These things are not small. God's standard is all sin is worthy of death. Eating the fruit from a tree was worthy of death. So I wanted to remind you of all these things before I got going. Again, this is going to be very simple. So if you would, turn to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to give you the first one. And again, I picked three. I didn't have any particular, you know, I don't have any person in mind with this other than maybe myself. Because the point of this is not to look around at others and condemn them. Because, again, you're being a Pharisee. The point is to look in your heart and to fight the war that we have there. Now, I asked for the hymn that we sang before this, Who is on the Lord's Side? Because I want you to think we have a war that we are fighting. And that war is not against other people. And that war is not fought on the outside. It's a war inside of our hearts to remove the things that are wrong from our lives. So I'm going to talk to you first about emulation. Again, probably not a word you use this week. But if you look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21, we have a list of sins. And in the middle of this list, you'll find emulation. So let's look at these things here. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. A lot of sexual sins there, and most of those things we would say are pretty bad. But the list goes on. Idolatry, witchcraft, Again, horrible sins. Hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, the things that are like them, of which I tell you, of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So we have a list here. And this list has a lot of horrible things in it. And then we get to some that we really don't know that well. And a lot of the things in this verse are actually things you'll find on the list of forgotten sins. But emulations. Now, let's give you the dictionary definition of emulation. To endeavor to equal or surpass others in any achievement or quality. Also, the desire or ambition to equal or excel. This is having an overactive sense of competition. You want to be better than others. You want to have better things. You want to be able to accomplish greater things. This is trying to compete with others for no useful purpose whatsoever. God condemns it. How competitive are you? In our society, we glory in competition. Now, we love to watch our team destroy the other team. We love to watch the people who beat everyone else and get more money and do so well. But let me ask you, is that the mindset that we should have? 
should we be seeking to best others? Now, I would tell you this is also related to other sins. You would also see in the list envy, pride, strife, and vainglory. But this is something that we find in our hearts very easily. I've seen it in mine, and I'm sure you've seen it in yours. How much do we allow emulation to rule us? How much do we allow ourselves to be dragged into, well, that person has something new and better than me. I want to have better myself. It's a form of hatred in our hearts against others. We want to be better. We want to be the best. Are we allowing this a place in our lives? Because God hates it. You are not worthy of the kingdom of God if you have emulation in your life. Now, I would say that there is one place for emulation. Turn with me to Romans 11. We'll be getting there shortly. It's already been mentioned several times in the previous weeks. There is one holy form of emulation that's exemplified here. So if you want to compete, I'm going to tell you what you should compete in. Romans 11, verse 14. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. Paul is talking about the way that the Gentiles could make by by emulation make the Jews serve Christ better. You know, there's one way in which you can strive for emulation, and that's to try and best everyone else in the love of Christ. But, you know, that's putting away the actual fleshly emulation in your life. Next up on the list, we have evil surmising. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Again, I did use it these words this week, but mainly because I was thinking about this already. But I bet you didn't use the words evil surmising this week. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4. He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing the gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Now, again, this is in the middle of a passage, but looking at here, we have this statement about evil surmisings. Now, what is evil surmisings? An allegation, charge, imputation, especially a false, unfounded, or unproved charge or allegation, conjecturing or suspecting evil of another. Again, that old man whelms up within us, and it says, I know why he did that. He did that just to spite me. Evil surmisings. It's in our hearts that we look around at others and we see something and we just think it must be because they're selfish. Not because they didn't notice us while they walked by and didn't say hi. Not because they were already busy or they had their hands full with something else. But because they just don't like us. Does that sound familiar at all to any of your hearts? Or is it just me? Brethren, God hates it. When you assume evil of others, God hates it. I'd remind you, in 1 Corinthians 13, we have a list of what love is. Love believeth all things. Love hopeth all things. Love seeketh not its own. I mean, we have so many things in there that describe the exact opposite of evil surmisings. It believes the best about someone else. By doing the opposite of love, what is the opposite of love? Hate. So, Evil surmisings is hatred. And again, we're back to the list. We've got here backbiting, hatred, slandering, tailbearing, whispering. But we have hatred. Hatred is murder. Hatred's murder, and murder is a capital offense. So if you're going to evil surmise of someone, again, you're guilty of a capital offense. That's God's standard. 
So why would you assume evil of someone else? And my final one for you, and probably my favorite on the entire list has always been self-love. Turn to 2 Timothy 3.2. And I love to go over this one because this is one that the Christian world today endorses, proclaims and preaches as loud as it can that you should love yourself. Let me tell you, 2 Timothy 3 says something completely different. Starting in verse 1, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. The very first thing stated in the list of perilous times of Christianity falling is loving yourself. Now, let's be honest. They're going to talk about how you don't love yourself enough. Really? You love yourself more than you've ever loved anybody. And probably more than you ever will. Brethren, we don't need more love for ourselves. We need more love of others. Now, looking at this, we have um, similar ones of being prideful and high-minded. And the dictionary definition when you look at this is loving one's own self, preferring and thinking highly of one's own self, self-esteem, self-respect, arrogance, and conceit. And I tell you that the response to this should be in Philippians chapter 2. So please turn with me there. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Brethren, the Christian world may say whatever it likes about how you need to love yourself. Wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and tell yourself that you're wonderful. You think you're wonderful every time you look in the mirror anyway, or you wouldn't do it. (laughs) Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. The Christian standard is not how much do you love yourself. The Christian standard is how much do you love yourself more, how much do you love others more than yourself? How do you show that you're a child of God? The number one way, love of others. Not love of yourself. The more you love yourself, the less space you have to love others. The less time you have to love others, the less effort you have to love others. Brethren, our generation hate these truths. They don't speak of them. They reject them. They love doing these things. They preach it to you if you let them. But let me remind you that the Word of God is what should lead us. The Word of God is what should teach us as to what we should do. There is a gigantic outline with all sorts of points that you may not have thought about, and it's easily available to you. You can look through it in a little bit of time and learn things from the Word of God. I'd beg all of you. I gave you three out of 65. Mm -hmm. Three. You should look and you should see how you're failing in your warfare for Christ, your warfare within yourself. You should choose that you are going to be on the Lord's side, that you're going to put away the things in your own heart, in your own lives, that don't match up, no matter how small they are, no matter how unfamiliar they are. Brethren, we have a great opportunity. We have those tools already available to us. I'd ask you to take advantage of it. I'd ask you to look and see where you might already have emulation or evil surmising or self-love. I'd ask you to root it out and I'd ask that you pray on my behalf that I do the same thing. May God receive the glory for his word. And it came to pass, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, 
Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, We're not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? They're not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. My message today is, Where are the nine? Of the ten men that Jesus healed, only one gave thanks. Now, you might think to yourself, ten men were healed, wouldn't they all be thankful? Well, sure. I'm sure, I'm sure that the other nine that went down to, to show themselves to the priests were thankful. But yet the passage doesn't recognize that. Why is that? They didn't do anything. Thanks isn't just within your heart. And we'll go into that today. I have three points. I'd like to look at what is thankfulness, how we can show our thankfulness, and some reasons or why we should be thankful. Let's start. What is thankfulness? Thankfulness is defined as being grateful and appreciative, especially to God. Psalm 104, which we sang, says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. Amen. Being thankful is blessing his name. It's also exhorting or lifting up the Lord, as Psalm 69:30 says, I will praise the name of God with a song, and will magnify him with thanksgiving. By giving him thanks, showing our appreciation verbally to him, we lift God up. Now, sure, we can't lift him up any more than he already is, but in our own hearts and to those around us, we lift the Lord up by giving him thanks. And being thankful isn't just necessarily for the good things. Ephesians 5.20 says, Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So... You might be tempted just to be thankful if you get a raise, you get a bonus, you get a new car, get something cool. No. The trials and tribulations that God brings into our lives, we should be thankful for. And if nothing else, we could be thankful that it's not worse than it is, because it can always get worse. We always have something to be thankful for. Now, I already touched on it earlier, but how do we show our thankfulness? Well, namely, with our mouths. It's not good enough to be thankful in our hearts. Hebrews 13.15 says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Like I said before, it doesn't matter if you're thankful in your heart. If you don't say something or verbally recognize, or, or uh, if you don't verbally say something, the Lord doesn't count it, and others they can't, they can't tell if you're thankful. If you give someone a present, for, just for example, if you give someone a present and they take it, they could be super excited and very thankful. But if they never say anything to you, what good does it do you? I mean, you think that, I, I never want to get that person a gift again. It, the <laughs> Thankfulness is evidenced by our mouths. Psalm 71, 8 and verse 15 say, Let my mouth be filled with thy praise and with thy honor all the day. 
My mouth shall show forth thy righteousness and thy salvation all the day, for I know not the numbers thereof. Psalm 35, 28 says, And my tongue shall speak of thy righteousness and of thy praise all the day long. We praise God by our thanksgivings. Now, we have to say something, but do we just say it to ourselves or say ourselves verbally? No. We should be giving thanks before our brethren in the congregation. Psalm 35, 18, I will give thee thanks in the great congregation. I will praise thee among much people. Psalm 34, 1 through 4, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. What does your thanksgiving cause others to do? They cause others to be glad, to rejoice, and you want to exalt his name together. Right. Amen. Psalm 105.1 says, O give thanks unto the Lord, call upon his name, Make known his deeds among the people. Well, you can give thanks as in, uh, in front of the con- great congregation, but you can also sing. By singing to one another, we can give thanks and lift him up through singing and also in prayer. Amen. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Thanksgiving should be a part of our prayer. The Lord thanked the Lord Jesus Christ thank God that he had blinded some things and had shown them unto the wise, uh, shown them unto the simple. He thanked the Lord in his prayers. How much more should we thank the Lord? So we know what thanksgiving is. It's being grateful and appreciative to God. We know how to show thanksgiving. It's not just in our heart. It's through our mouths. So what are some reasons that we should be thankful for? Well, first off, it pleases the Lord. Psalm 69, 30 through 31 said, I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock that hath horns and hooves. The Lord wants the sacrifices of our mouths. He wants to hear how thankful we are for the things that he's done. Also, it not only pleases the Lord, but the Lord commands it. Psalm 50, verse 14 says, Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High. Colossians 3.17 And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's God's will for your life. Hey, we know his will for our lives. It's to give thanksgiving unto the Lord. Amen. We should also give thanksgivings because it's a good thing. Psalm 92.1 says, It's a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. But he's also done other things for us. He says it's a good thing, the Lord commands it, but he's done so much for us. What can we thank him for that he's done to in our lives personally? Well, how about for our conversion? Romans 6.17 says, But God be thanked, that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. We should be thankful that we've heard the joyful sound and we've been converted to his glorious gospel. Amen. Amen. But that's not it. He's also, the Lord has also given us victory over death and hell. Right, man. First Corinthians fifteen fifty-five through 57 said, O death, where is thy sting? 
O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. How awesome is that? God has also done many wondrous works that we should be thankful for. Psalm 26, 7, that I may publish with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all thy wondrous works. He's done so many small blessings in our lives and huge blessings. He brought me my wife. He brought you your spouse. He's given you great jobs. He's blessed you. He's kept you safe. He heals you from your diseases. How many wondrous works has he done for you? How often do you tell him that you're thankful for those things? How often do I? We should also give thanks to God because he is mighty. Revelation eleven seventeen says, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. If the four beasts are saying how awesome the Lord is, and they're pretty awesome themselves, how awesome and how thankful should we be for his great might and power? We should also give thanks to the Lord for his holiness. Psalm 34, Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. David was thankful for the Lord's holiness. So should we be. Psalm 97, 12, Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. The Lord's not only holy, he also shows us his goodness and mercifulness, his mercy. We should be thankful for those things. Psalm 106.1, Praise ye the Lord, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And what's one of the best ways or best manifestations of his goodness and mercy? In the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God, speaking of Jesus Christ, for his unspeakable gift. That Jesus Christ would die for us is unspeakable. So we've seen what thankfulness is. It's being grateful and appreciative. We've seen that being thankful in your heart isn't good enough. You have to verbally say, it's, it's, you have to verbally speak one to another, or sing, or pray your thanksgivings to the Lord. And we've seen some reasons that we can be thankful. So what's holding you back? What's holding me back? Are you afraid to get up here? Am I afraid to get up here? Do you speak to your friends, your family? If the Lord has done all those things for us, we should be giving thanks all the time. Amen. May the Lord help us to be more thankful, to not be like the nine, that we can be like that Samaritan, that we can glorify God with a loud voice, giving him thanks, that he'll recognize us and remember us for it, that we give him thanks that he deserves. Paul mentions that uh, there were three components of proper worship, and he exhorted Timothy to give attendance to all three, and that was reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. So the uh, the two speakers that we've heard this morning uh, were very much the reading and the exhort, exhorting of those uh, of those three categories. So at, at this time, though, at this point, I'd like to shift our attention to more reading and to doctrine. And uh, what I'd like to focus on, you go ahead and turn there, is Romans 8, the last part of this chapter. 
this isn't new. This isn't uh, this isn't something that uh, uh, should be particularly uh, particularly new to to any of us. Perhaps it's something that's been put together by our pastor. It's been studied and been preached uh, thoroughly, um, and I'm very thankful for that. But I'd I'd like to just, uh, if I could, just explain some of the facets of the eternal phase of salvation and just take that diamond and kind of dust it off a bit and and let the light shine on a facet or two or three of that diamond and just enjoy it and just revel in the gift that God has given, the unspeakable gift that Paul just referred to. But I particularly want to enjoy this facet and this diamond, if you will, from eternity past perspective, I want to press home the bottom line is that God planned and purposed his intentions concerning you and concerning me and concerning each of us individually long before we existed and long before this world came into being. He went so far to purpose and to plan and to demonstrate his intentions in this manner as to plan each of the five phases of salvation that we see revealed in Scripture in eternity past. Those perspectives and those aspects of salvation that we revel in and we enjoy today didn't just occur. They didn't just happen one day. Jesus didn't just decide to come down and save us. It was specifically purposed and planned, very specifically and intentionally, before the world began. I want to just glorify in God's gift to us and his love for us. I want to edify and encourage you as saints, as the righteous here this morning. I want to, I want to shed light on the balm of Gilead that exists in scripture. I want to provide comfort to true believers here this morning in the stability and the security and the rock solid nature of your eternal destiny and election. Amen. The eternal phase, by definition, provided an outline by our pastor, eternal phase is God's plan and choice from eternity to allow sin into the world and to save his elect from that sin. Since he is eternal and sovereign, God planned in eternity all that he does in time. Therefore, there are no surprises to God. He planned to allow sin so that he could display his glorious grace and power in saving his elect from that sin and displaying his power and wrath on the rest that he did not elect. This this eternal phase is the basis for all the other phases because it includes in it the purpose of God. God's will, I'm going to explain this morning and show some verses. I've got 30 or so verses to look at. We may may look at all of them speedily. Um, This includes God's will, his design, his intent, his purpose, his plan. It's an act in eternity past of God's mind. He thought this and declared it that it would occur. It occurred in eternity past before the foundation of the world. Scripture refers to that time period as of old. Before the beginning of the world, before the foundation of the world. Consider Isaiah for a moment. The Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That's right. From Isaiah 14. Consider in Isaiah 46. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Amen. 
and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Again, I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Consider from Acts 15. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Amen. Consider from Romans 4. God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Amen. Consider in front of you Romans eight twenty eight and 29. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren, that is us. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also will glorify. Oh, wait. Them he also glorified. Past tense. Why? Why are all those in the past tense? It's because, my friends, that he uh, he purposed it Amen. before you existed. And he alone is able to call those things and to order those things that he specifies and intends so that they occur exactly as he intended. That's right. It is all in past tense because in the mind of God he has already occurred. It is just as certain as if it were already history. Amen. We, uh, we continue on in this eternal phase uh, by defining it this. These components occurred in the eternity past. Sin was foreknown and planned. Condemnation and reprobation was designed. Thankfully, representation in both Adam and in Christ was designed and planned. In eternity past, the elect was chosen. The elect were chosen individually, and they were given as a gift to Jesus Christ by covenant of salvation, by grace, to save. That was his job description. These group of people, these individuals, I give to you, now go save them on the cross. But that was the intent, and that had already occurred in the mind of God. Christ was ordained to die for his elect. Heaven was prepared for his elect. It existed so that those elect could be saved and then join him in heaven for eternity. What an incredible set of blessings specifically designed to provide comfort and security for the saints of God. If this salvation is yours, which is proven by the evidence that is given in Scripture, if it is yours, then your salvation could not possibly be more certain, more sure, more solid because, here's why, it depends on God's character. Right. Consider this verse. This is how Paul described it. Titus 1-2. In hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. He cannot lie, and so to alter his intentions, purpose, and stated cause is to question his integrity, is to impugn on him the ability of sin. And that is absolutely impossible. 
God cannot lie, and he promised this before the world began. Now, here, there's our diamond. We've just defined our diamond, okay? We want to turn this diamond and see a couple, several of the facets of salvation, words describing our salvation. For example, foreknowledge, election, uh, predestination, justification, redemption, conversion, and glorification. Those are several that, that we'll look at just briefly. I'll try to be fast. These, I have multiple verses for each one of these that proves that these occurred in times past in, before the foundation of the world. Romans 8, 29 before you. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. The exact specific group of people that he foreknew, he also did predestinate. No more, no less. It is a specific group of people and he did foreknow them. Consider 1 Peter 1, 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Consider the opposite, Matthew 7. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Right. Later on in Matthew 25, however, then the king shall say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Yeah. Outstanding. Amen. Election. Election means chosen, selected, set apart. Election. First Peter 1, 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Ephesians 1, 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, Amen. that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We're considering this facet of this diamond of salvation called election, specifically in that it occurred before the foundation of the world. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God from 1 Thessalonians. Paul said that to the church of the Thessalonians. Consider 2 Timothy 1, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Amen. John 6.37. I love John 6 and John 10. But John 6.37, consider this. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Amen. The all. Are you in that all? Are you in that all? If you have come to him, that is very good fruit, and that is very good proof that you are in that all, and you were given to Christ Jesus for him to save legally on the cross. Hebrews 2.13, when we get to heaven, Behold, I and the children which God hath given me, Jesus will say about us. Revelation, they are... Uh, they that are with him in the Lamb, in this, in the presentation of the Lamb with his saints, they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Amen. Predestination. Destiny determined beforehand. Slightly different than election. Obviously related. It's, uh, it's accomplished, by the way, this predestination was accomplished by representation. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Consider Ephesians 1.11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Right. Outstanding. For whom he did foreknow before you in Romans 8, he also did predestinate. So this concept is not new in scripture. It's, it's, it's very well explained. Ephesians 1.5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Once again, according to the good pleasure of his will. Amen. Uh, I have to skip a few. I have to skip a few. 
I'll end that section by saying, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Amen. These previous three, foreknowledge, election, predestination, were planned and actually occurred in times past, okay? But these next ones that I'm going to briefly explain, justification, redemption, conversion, etc., were planned beforehand but occurred in times present, okay? Justification, declared righteous before God, a legal term. Just as if I had never sinned and just as if Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness was on me. Just as if I had lived Jesus Christ's life. An accountant who looks at the world in a series of debits and credits may say, Jesus Christ, me. Some total is perfectly righteous, perfectly worthless. However, there's an interrelated exchange in here where Jesus Christ's righteousness was debited and placed on our account and our sin was debited and placed on Jesus Christ's account. So we have a swap that means the world. And so the sum total of those interrelated transactions is Jesus Christ's righteousness is now on us. Unbelievable. Because he took our sin. Unbelievable. Justification. Whom he called in Romans 8, them he also justified. From Acts 15, Paul is declaring in this chapter that God's plan all along was to rebuild the city and tabernacle of David to include the Gentiles. Okay, And here we pick up in verse 17. You don't have to turn there. Stay where you're at. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles, upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. And then immediately in this context, we get this glorious reminder, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. This was the intent all along to include us and to justify us. Consider this from Second Timothy 4. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Can you believe it? A crown of righteousness. We're justified which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Right. Tied together closely with that is the financial term redemption, purchased, bought back from destruction. This also was planned before the world began. First Peter 1 says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Consider conversion for just a second. We'll move on. Consider conversion. Did you realize that the fact that you are to obey the truth and understand the truth and bring your life into conformance with the truth was also declared before the foundation of the world? This is part of the practical phase of salvation. 2 Timothy 2.13, which our pastor has quoted often, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. That's practical salvation. He's chosen us to that through belief of the truth. Consider from Acts 13 those Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Amen. Of course, it's natural. For a child of God to believe the truth when he hears it. That's normal. Glorification. From Romans 8.30 before you. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Amen. That's his intent and stated purpose from before the foundation of the world. In fact, Jesus said, in my father's house are, present tense, many mansions. So they had to exist before Jesus walked to the earth, right? Because they were already there when he said they were there. If it were not so, I would have told you. All right, you can assume this. It's not that he's arguing for their existence. 
He's arguing that if that wasn't the case, of course I'd tell you. But it is the case. You can assume that it's the case. Right. I go to prepare a place for you. Amen. First Corinthians 2. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Amen. But thankfully, but... God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. That's right. So yes, it in some ways is incomprehensible. But guess what? They are enumerated specifically in Scripture for us to take comfort by. And so that the Spirit of God can witness with our spirit that these things are true. Amen. I would invite you, as we're at Romans 8, to read with me in unison as you're seated, verses 33 through 39. Romans 8 verses 33 through 39, and consider the solidness and the security and the aspects of the safety of God's love for us. Romans eight thirty-three together. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, uh, before I end, I want to look at the hymn that we're about to sing, "'Twas with an everlasting love," and I failed to look up the number it's in your 453. 453 in your Burgundy hymn books. Could you please turn to that and look along, read along with me, while I explain just a little nuance that the author intended. This is one of my favorite hymns. Amen. A month or so ago, I had made a comment or two about this hymn as covering several of the phases of salvation. And afterward, the pastor came to me or sent me an email and he said, I love exactly what you said and everything you said is exactly accurate. However, consider what the author may have intended, and based on his research, he believes that he did intend, that all this, all these phases that are described in this psalm were planned and purposed in the mind of God from eternity past, which is exactly my point this morning. Consider, twas with an everlasting love that God his own elect embraced before he made the worlds above. Consider verse 3, then in his love and his decrees, okay, this is purpose, this is intent, his decrees, his established commandments, Christ and his bride appeared in the mind of God as one. Her sin, by imputation his, while she, 
in spotless splendor shone. O love, how high thy glory swell, how great, immutable, and free. Free to who? Not free to Christ, free to us. Ten thousand sins as black as hell are swallowed up, O love, by thee. And now the last believer, here thy comfort stands. Why? Why is this comforting? From first to last, salvation's free. Didn't cost you anything. It cost Christ a lot. Didn't cost us anything, and therefore it's comforting. Because if it did cost something, and if any cost was left for us to pay, it couldn't be paid. It couldn't be. So it's free. An everlasting love demands an everlasting song from thee.